calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot-button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Hi, I'm Madigan, and you're listening to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist. This is a podcast that explores the world through a personal feminist perspective. Hello, everybody, and welcome to my birthday month. So before I get into anything to do with today's episode, because I have a feeling it is going to be a long one, I have a lot to say on this topic, but before I get into everything else, I want to remind you that for my birthday week, I am going to record an Ask Me Anything episode, so be sure to get your questions into me this week. I posted a little questions thing on my story. Someone help me. I don't know what these little things are called. I, I put a story up with the question robot, whatever you want to call it. So you could answer, so you could ask me some of the questions there. I've saved all of those, but you can also just DM me one of your questions at Angry Neighborhood Feminist Pod on Instagram, or you can email me at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com with any of those questions as well. Feel free to email me or DM me multiple questions, uh, anything that you want to know, no holds barred. Please, I would just love to receive those questions and see what y'all are wanting to know about me. So I'm going to record that one probably the day before my birthday, so I don't have to record on my birthday. Usually Sundays are when I get all of my recording and editing done for the full episode, but I'm going to want to enjoy my day a little bit, so I want to record that on Saturday. So be sure to have everything into me by Saturday if I record before you get your question in. I'm sorry, that's just the way it goes, but maybe I'll answer some of those questions on Instagram then so I won't leave you hanging. I also want to mention really quick that you can join me on Patreon as well if you want to give a little extra support to the show and get some extra content. At the $5 level, you can join the Angry Feminist Book Club. And at the $8 level, you join the Feminist Faves level, where you get all of the book club content, plus these episodes ad-free and sometimes just a little bit early at least. Whenever I'm done with them, I'll just throw it onto the Patreon first, and then it'll be regularly scheduled on the main feed. Oh my gosh, I just had to like pause and catch my breath. I just said all of that so fast without taking much of a breath. Goodness gracious. All right, well, I am really looking forward to the topic of conversation today because 
the subject of the conversation, Miss Anne Frank, is somebody that I've always felt really, really close to since I was really, really little. And as I was writing this episode and preparing for it, I was trying to remember, you know, the catalyst for my interest in Anne Frank and her story. And I think it all comes back to this ABC miniseries that came out in 2001. It was this like two part series that was on, you know, ABC. And it was called Anne Frank, The Whole Story. It was based on a 1998 book entitled Anne Frank, The Biography, which I've never read, but I feel like I should now. But I'm going to look into it because I read somewhere that they did add kind of just like more of a theory of who ratted out the Frank family and their hiding place. And there has been more research on that in recent years and things like that, which I'm going to get into toward the end of the episode. But I was reading that there was some disagreements between the movie makers and the Anne Frank house and the foundation and things like that, which that never makes me feel super good. But I was obsessed with this miniseries. I don't know if my mom let me watch it or if I just watched it without her knowing, like in the basement or something where I could kind of do whatever I wanted for the most part. We recorded it on a VHS tape so I could watch it again and again and again. Yes, kids, gather around. Back in the day, if you wanted to watch the thing that you liked on TV again, you would get one of those big VHS tapes. And then we had like one of those little things that had like a pocket that opened up and you would stick a new like blank tape in there or whatever, record whatever was on TV, and then you could pop that little tape out so you didn't have like a million of these like VHS things everywhere we just had one and you could reuse the different like film inside I don't know sounds high tech it's not but you would record the entire thing commercials and all so whenever I would watch it even like years later when I was like in high school I was obsessed with this movie I'm telling you I would have to fast forward through all of like the 2001 commercials I would love to see if we still had the VHS tape and the recording of this movie to go back and see all of those old commercials again that would be so funny and the movie was like one of my sick movies like if I was going to be homesick all day that's what I watched that or Titanic because I explained this on an earlier episode I think in the mini episode that back in the day when a movie was really long they had to split it into two VHS tapes So you'd have to like get up halfway through and, you know, pop in the next one to watch the rest of the movie or whatever. But they were super long. So they were perfect, sick movies. And I don't know, I guess I was gravitating toward the drama as always. And I feel like the chain of events of what probably happened was that I watched this series and then I was like, oh my gosh, I have to read her diary. And I remember my first copy was like bigger than a normal paperback, but it was still a paperback. And it had kind of a gold cover with the image of her, you know, sitting at like a school desk or something with her arms crossed that you've seen a million times. And I remember reading it like on a floaty at the cabin, reading it in the car, reading it at the ice rink. I was obsessed. I remember reading it in the summer very, very vividly. And then I remember once I became so obsessed, of course, then when I had a school project where we had to do a biography of someone in history, I, of course, chose Anne Frank. I remember working really, really hard on that project and feeling super, super confident about it. Like I already knew so much about her already at that point, and I feel like I totally nailed it, but it was so funny because I remember standing in front of the class And there was one part where I left out 
Peter's name, the guy that Anne eventually has a crush on. And I said that I couldn't remember it when I really did because I had a crush on a kid named Peter that was in my class and I didn't want him to think that I had a crush on him or something. So dumb. I shouldn't have dumbed myself down because of a boy. Come on. But I was definitely an oddball while all of my other classmates were hooked on the brand new Harry Potter series, Lost in a World of Magic. I lost myself in Anne's imagination, her frustrations, her desires, her feelings, and her hope. I loved getting to know the girl that I knew had such a tragic ending. Now, about 22 years later or so, I've gotten one new copy of the book since I was a kid, but I've read it so many times that this copy is coming apart at the seams, waterlogged and ripped, but very well loved. The Diary of a Young Girl by Anne Frank will always be one of my all-time favorite books, and Anne will always be one of my all-time inspirations. Maybe one day I'll break down the whole book on Patreon? Let me know if you're interested. Annalise Marie Frank was born on June 12, 1929, in the German city of Frankfurt to Otto and Edith Frank. It's funny, I'm looking at a photo of Anne right now, and it's not a zoomed-in photo, it's just on my phone, so I can't see her perfectly clearly, but it kind of reminds me of the nine-year-old girl that I take care of. They really do have a strong resemblance to each other, and this little girl is half-Jewish as well, so it's interesting that I'm like, oh, wow, that, that kind of looks like her. That's interesting. Their noses are a little bit different, but their eyes and their smile are really similar. It's kind of shocking, but just in this one photo that I'm looking at, it's the main Wikipedia photo of her, so if you want to Google it, that's the one. But anyways, her father Otto was born into a liberal middle-class Jewish family in Frankfurt, Germany. That means that they didn't quite adhere as much to the Jewish traditions. They probably didn't go to church as much. They weren't so much into the religious side of Judaism, but more, I guess, of like the cultural side of Judaism. He studied economics in college, and when the First World War broke out in 1914, he joined the Imperial German Army the following year. His wife, Edith Hollander, was an heiress to a scrap metal and industrial supply company business and also came from a German-Jewish family. Her father, Aachen, worked with Edith's mother, Rosa, in the family business. I feel like it's very progressive for Rosa to be working in the family business before 1900 because their daughter, Edith, was born in 1900. (laughs) Edith had a very privileged and carefree childhood until her older sister, Bettina, died at the age of 16 when Edith was only 14 years old. This probably really affected Edith for the rest of her life because, I don't know, in the way that she's described by her daughter and by others, she seems like a very meek, kind of sad, maybe a little bit more of an anxious person. Otto and Edith met in 1924 and married on Otto's birthday, May 12th, in 1925, at Edith's father's synagogue. Edith was only 25 years old, and that day Otto turned 36 years old. Photos from their early marriage shows them going to dinner parties, playing tennis with friends, and going on holidays by the sea. The couple purchased a home in Frankfurt to begin their family. Anne's sister, Margot Betty, who I assume was named after Edith's deceased sister, Bettina, was born on February 16, 1926, followed by Anne herself, like I said, on June 12, 1929. Otto kept his family much like the one he came from, and his daughters were raised as liberal Jews. They did not observe all of the customs and traditions of Judaism and lived in an assimilated community of Jewish and non-Jewish people. 
Edith and Otto were incredibly devoted to their children and wanted them to be well-rounded and well-educated. I guess they had this really big library in their home, and they encouraged their children to read whatever they wanted. As Hitler gained more and more power in Germany, unemployment rose and poverty was severe. Hitler hated Jews and blamed them for the problems in the country. This hatred of them and the poor economic status of the area made Otto and Edith decide to move to Amsterdam. The Franks were among 30,000 Jews who fled Germany between 1933 and 1939, hoping for safety. They made the move in 1934, when Anne was four and a half years old. There, Otto founded a company that traded pectin, a gelling agent for making jam. Before long, Anne felt right at home in the Netherlands. She learned the language, made new friends, and went to a Dutch school near her home. And luckily, her best friend, Hanelli Gossler, also known as Hannah Gossler, was by her side. I've seen it written as both Hannah and Hanelli in different places. Her Wikipedia page says Hannah, but then in a lot of different interviews, and I believe also on the Anne Frank website they say Hanelli, but maybe they said Hannah there too. I personally really like the name Hanelli, and I feel like I remember that more from when I was younger and learning this story, so I'm going to stick with that name. Anne and Hanelli went to the same kindergarten, primary school, and later on they both went to the same Jewish lyceum school that all of the Jewish children had to go to. In her diary, Anne writes, Hanelli Gossler, or Lise as she's called at school, is a bit on the strange side. She's usually shy, outspoken at home, but reserved around other people. She blabs whatever you tell her to her mother, but she says what she thinks, and lately I've come to appreciate that a great deal. Hanelli says of Anne, I was really a bit shy. I certainly wasn't anything like Anne. She was popular with both the boys and the girls. Being the center of attention was just fine as far as she was concerned. Anne was a smart aleck. My mother used to say, God knows everything, but Anne knows it better. In 1938, Otto began a second company called Pecticon, which was a wholesaler for herbs, pickling salts, and mixed spices used in the production of sausage. So German. Herman von Pels was employed by the company as an advisor on spices. That sounds like an amazing job. How do I get it? I want to advise on spices. Herman had been a butcher back in Osnabrück with his family. On September 1st, 1939, when Anne was 10 years old, Nazi Germany invaded Poland, and so the Second World War began. This is so stupid, but every time I see the year 1939, the first thing I think of is The Wizard of Oz. When we add the movie to the context of Anne's story, it gets kind of interesting to me. This Again, I'm so sorry for going on this tangent, but I was thinking about this when I was writing this episode. Anne would have been the perfect age to enjoy The Wizard of Oz. And had she been an American girl, she probably would have been running to the theater that year with her father to see the film. Instead, she was dealing with something that no 10-year-old should ever have to live through or try to comprehend. It reminds me how young and precious Anne was when all of this began, and how she had to grow up so quickly. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. 
That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. On May 10th, 1940, the Nazis invaded the Netherlands and the government began to persecute Jews by implanting restrictive and discriminatory laws with full-on segregation to follow. I'll let Anne explain the restrictions to you herself. In her diary entry from June 20th, 1942, she writes, After May 1940, good times rapidly fled. First the war, then the capitulation, followed by the arrival of the Germans, which is when the sufferings of us Jews really began. Anti-Jewish decrees followed each year in quick succession. Jews must wear a yellow star. Jews must hand in their bicycles. Jews are only allowed to do their shopping between 3 and 5 o'clock, and then only in shops which bear the placard Jewish shop. Jews must be indoors by 8 o'clock and cannot even sit in their own gardens after hours. Jews are forbidden to visit movie theaters, cinemas, and other places of entertainment. Jews may not take part in public sports. Swimming baths, tennis courts, hockey fields, and other sports grounds are all prohibited to them. Jews may not visit Christians. Jews must go to Jewish schools, and many more restrictions of a similar nature. Because Jewish people were not allowed to run their own businesses, Otto Frank lost his company. Anne and Margot began attending the Jewish Lyceum School, an exclusive Jewish secondary school in Amsterdam, which was newly opened at the time. To me, there's nothing different from this situation in our country working so hard to keep schools segregated during the civil rights movement. The separate water fountains, theaters, shops, the Nazis and the white supremacists of the United States are truly one and the same, yet a lot of this happened fairly close together in time, and Americans weren't able to see that, which is incredibly frustrating to me. That passage Anne mentioned the star that they all had to wear, which is referring to the star of David Patch that every Jewish person was required to wear when out in public for easy identification to make sure they're abiding by the rules. Rumors also began to spread that all Jews would have to leave the Netherlands. Otto tried to make arrangements for the family to emigrate to the United States, but his application for a visa was never processed. This was probably because in May 1940, the U.S. consulate in Rotterdam was destroyed in a German bombing, resulting in the loss of paperwork there, including the Frank family's visa applications. However, two of Anne's uncles on her mother's side were able to flee to America in 1935. In June of 1942, Anne received a red and white checked diary with a little gold lock on it for her birthday. She named this diary Kitty. Here's what she writes in her first entry. It's an odd idea for someone like me to keep a diary, not only because I have never done so before, but because it seems to me that neither I, nor for that matter anyone else, will be interested in the unbosomings of a 13-year-old schoolgirl. Still, what does that matter? I want to write, but more than that, I want to bring out all kinds of things that lie buried deep beneath my heart. There is a saying that paper is more patient than man. It came back to me on one of my slightly melancholy days. She also writes in that entry, I hope I shall be able to confide in you completely, as I have never been able to do in anyone before, and I hope that you will be a great support and comfort to me. Much of Anne's diary entries from June 14th, the first one, to July 5th consist much of what she does in her day-to-day life. Hobbies she has, boys she likes, her friends, and she talks a lot about school. On July 5th, though, it changes a little bit. She wrote, Daddy began to talk of us going into hiding. I asked him why on earth he was beginning to talk of that already. Yes, Anne, he said. 
You know that we have been taking food, clothes, furniture to other people for more than a year now. We don't want our belongings to be seized by the Germans, but we certainly don't want to fall into their clutches ourselves. So we shall disappear of our own accord and not wait until they come fetch us. He reassured her not to worry, that the adults will arrange everything. In the spring of 1942, Otto had begun furnishing a hiding place in the annex of his business premises at 263 Pinsengrad. Anne and the rest of the group had it much better off than many of the other Jews in hiding at the time. Many others had to hide in incredibly cramped spaces. There was this museum exhibit in Warsaw which displayed a hollowed-out tree trunk, a wardrobe with a space for a small boy, and a vast system of caves in Ukraine. Some children were put into other homes, masquerading as relatives. Hani Weissenberg, now Levy, survived as a Jew in Nazi Germany by staying with non-Jewish friends of her deceased parents. She removed the yellow star from her clothing, dyed her hair blonde, and began her new life as Hanelore Winkler. The film The Invisibles, which was released in 2017, is a German docudrama based on Hani's experience during this time, as she thankfully survived the war to tell her story. On July 5th, as Anne and Otto were discussing going into hiding, Margot received a call-up to report to a so-called labor camp in Germany, which worried Otto and Edith. The two had already planned on taking the family into hiding on July 16th, but with this notice, they realized they had to act faster. They decided that the following day, the family would go into hiding. On July 8th, 1942, Anne writes, Years seem to have passed between Sunday and now. So much has happened. It is just as if the whole world had turned upside down. But I am still alive, Kitty, and that is the main thing, Daddy says. When the Frank family went into hiding, Germany was at the height of its conquests, with Hitler's empire extending from the English Channel deep into Russia from the Arctic Circle to North Africa. Thankfully, the family received help from Otto's former colleagues. The Frank family was assisted before and during their stay in the annex by Meep and Jan Guys, most importantly, in my opinion, I love them, Johan and Bep Voskuhil, sorry if I'm saying these names wrong, along with Victor Kugler and Johans Kleinman. The only access to the outside world that the eight in the secret annex would have came from these helpers. The helpers kept them informed on news of the war and other political developments, as well as what was going on in day-to-day life. They had to cater to all of their needs. They ensured their safety and supplied them with food, which became more and more difficult as time went on and supplies became more and more scarce. The aide in the annex, as well as the helpers, were constantly aware that if caught, they could face death. Meep was raised in a poverty-stricken Catholic family in Vienna, Austria, and was born Hermine Santrauschitz. She was sent to the Netherlands by her parents when she was 11 years old in 1920 to get healthier. Also, the family rarely had food, and Meep had become very malnourished. She moved in with a foster family who lovingly received her, thankfully, and that family moved to Amsterdam in 1924. When Meep was 18, she had lost her job, but fortunately her upstairs neighbor knew of another opportunity. She began working as a representative for Otto Frank's business and arranged for an interview with Otto Frank himself. She was hired, and as soon as she had mastered the jam-making process, was promoted to the information service, the firm's customer service, where she answered questions by phone and by mail. Meet had met Jan on her first job, and the two married in the second year of the war. Otto was actually the witness at their wedding, and Anne was in attendance as well. The celebrations took place at Otto's business premises, and Anne presented them with a silver plate on behalf of the family and office staff. Jan was working as a social worker with the Social Services of Amsterdam. While working this job, he would distribute illegal papers to assist Jewish people in need of escape. 
Jan always kept quiet about the true nature of his work in this time. Meep and Jan then found a house near the Frank family, and the couple became very close with the entire family, often coming to their home for Saturday afternoons when they invited friends and acquaintances over. And I can attest, this is very much a thing in my heavily Jewish neighborhood. Every Saturday is a party around here. (laughs) When the business was taken from Otto, Jan, together with Victor Kugler, founded the company Guys & Co. to take over Otto's company for him. This was a way to keep Otto's business safe from the Nazis. Otto seemed to have been very fond of Meep and knew that he could trust her because he asked Meep to help him and his family go into hiding. She didn't hesitate for a second. Of course she would help. Victor Kugler began working for Otto in 1933, and Meep described him as a husky, good-looking man, dark-haired and precise. He was always serious, never joked. When asked in an interview after the war why he helped the Frank family, he said, They were my friends. I could not let them be butchered by the Germans. Apparently, his role in assisting the family was really hard on his mental health. Anne noted, Kugler, through the enormous responsibility for the eight of us, which is sometimes so much for him that he can barely speak from pent-up nerves and strain. Otto also said after the war, The responsibility Mr. Kugler had taken on weighed very heavy on him, and he lived under constant pressure, especially when his wife did not know about us and he could not talk about his concerns with her. Oof, I couldn't do that. it It would probably cause me mental distress as well, having to keep everything inside and be under that much stress all the time. The helpers divided the work, with Meep taking care of the meat and vegetables. In her diary, Anne wrote, Meep is just like a pack mule. She fetches and carries so much. Almost every day she manages to get hold of some vegetables for us and brings everything in shopping bags on her bicycle. On July 6, 1942, a Monday, the Frank family moved into their hiding place. Many of the final arrangements still needed to be made the day they decided they were going to go into hiding, since it was such a last-minute decision to push the date up so drastically, and they had to take a few extra bundles of supplies over to the annex ahead of their arrival. Most of the afternoon was spent packing frantically, while also having to act totally normal so that their upstairs renter wouldn't be suspicious of their activities. After the renter went to bed around 11 p.m., Meep and Jan guys arrived to take some of the packed supplies to the annex. The next morning at 5.30 a.m. on July 6, 1942, Anne Frank woke up for the last time in her bed in her home. They wore multiple layers so they wouldn't have to carry bags with them and cause suspicion. They left food on the counter, stripped the beds, and left a note giving instructions about who would take care of their cat. Anne was devastated to leave her beloved cat Morchi behind in the apartment. The note asked the upstairs tenant to give the kitty to their neighbors. Anne fought with her parents to please let Morchi come with them, but her parents told her it would be impossible. There's more cat drama to come. This story has everything. (laughs) Margot left the apartment first on her bike, and the rest of the family followed around 7.30 a.m., In her entry the following day, July 9th, my birthday, just 50 years to the day before I was born, she described the secret annex, and at least in my copy of the book, there's a diagram shown as well. The secret annex, or Echterhaus, which is Dutch for backhouse, I'm probably saying that wrong, but Dutch listeners, let me know, was a three-story space entered by a landing above Otto's old offices. The ground floor held the warehouse, the offices, a kitchen, and a small storeroom for Otto's former business. A right-hand door at the top of a flight of stairs led to their secret annex. Anne writes, No one would ever guess that there would be so many rooms hidden behind that plain gray door. Once inside, she writes, 
there is a steep staircase immediately opposite the entrance. On the left, a tiny passage brings you into a room which was to become the Frank family's bed-sitting room. Next door, a smaller room, study, and bedroom for the two young ladies of the family. On the right, a little room without windows containing the washroom and a small WC compartment with another door leading to Margot's and my room. If you go up to the next flight of stairs and open the door, you are simply amazed that there could be such a big light room in such an old house by the canal. There's a gas stove in this room, thanks to the fact that it used to be a laboratory, and a sink. This is now the kitchen for the Van Pels couple, besides being a general living room, dining room, and scullery. A tiny corridor room will become Peter Van Pels' apartment. Then, just as on the lower landing, there is a large attic. So there you are. I've introduced you to the whole of our beautiful secret annex. Yours, Anne. The total floor space was a mere 450 square feet. A cupboard was added to conceal the door to the annex around August 21st, according to Anne's diary. So if you're wondering why she mentioned a gray door and not the little bookshelf cupboard situation, that is why. The Franks were joined by four more people, the Van Pels family, on July 13th. The family included the father, Herman Van Pels, who I had mentioned earlier worked with Otto, and his wife, August Van Pels. They brought along their son, Peter, with them as well. Herman, with two N's, I should note, married August on Christmas Day in 1925. A year later, their son Peter was born in 1926. Much like the Franks, they left Germany when Hitler's rule became more powerful there, and since Herman's father was born in the Netherlands, it made him a Dutch citizen and an obvious choice for their family to relocate to the Netherlands. They lived very close to the Frank family. Cigarettes were important to Herman, and when the cigarettes ran out in the annex, he was bad-tempered. Anne even gifted him with an ashtray one year for St. Nicholas Day. When he wasn't in a bad mood, he was the jokester of the annex. Anne would even write his jokes down in her diary. Anne described August, Being industrious is one, cheerful is two, coy three, and sometimes a pretty face. August was only 41 years old when she went into the annex. There, August was usually cooking, trying her best to prepare yummy meals, which wasn't easy in this time of scarcity. August and Herman would often have horrible fights with one another, but were always quick to reconcile. There was one particularly bad fight when Herman made August sell her fur coat to fund the hiding. Anne wrote, The yells and screams, stamping and abuse, you can't possibly imagine it. It was frightening. My family stood at the bottom of the stairs holding their breath ready if necessary to drag them apart. Soon after, according to Anne, the reconciliation period of Oh Darling Putty and My Cute Curly set in. Apparently their nicknames for each other were Putty and Curly. Cute? Anne and August butted heads quite often in the annex. Anne didn't like that she and her husband fought and shouted at each other and wrote on September 1st, 1942, Mrs. Van Pels is unbearable. I get nothing but blow-ups from her for my continuous chatter. She is always pestering me one way or another. I'm not going to give too much info about their son Peter right away, as I don't want to give away some of my favorite parts of Anne's story. But here's a rundown. Peter was 15 years old when they went into hiding. Anne's first mention of him in the book refers to Peter being not 16 yet, a rather soft, shy, gawky youth, can't expect much from his company. Ouch. His parents had allowed him to bring his cat, Mouchy, into hiding, which enraged Anne, of course, who missed her cat dearly. Peter was also the only one in the annex to get their own room. 
There was a staircase in the middle of the main room which led to the attic and lofted the annex where Peter could often be found. Peter was quiet and withdrawn. Another way that Anne writes about him in the diary is that he flops lazily on his bed half the time, does a bit of carpentry, and goes back for another snooze. Emotions between the Frank women in particular ran incredibly high. On September 27, 1942, just a few months into hiding, Anne writes, I just had a big bust-up with Mummy for the umpteenth time. We simply don't get on together these days, and Margot and I don't hit it off any too well either. Margot and Mummy's natures are completely strange to me. I can understand my friends better than my own mother. Too bad. Such a teenager. In hiding, Edith and Anne often clashed. In her diary, Anne did not mince words when it came to her feelings about her mother, although she did seem to have an understanding that their circumstances had a lot to do with the feelings brewing underneath the arguments. She wrote, I usually keep my mouth shut if I get annoyed, and so does she, so we appear to get on much better together. According to Otto, Edith suffered more from these arguments than Anne did. He wrote, Of course I was worried about my wife and Anne not having a good relationship. However, she truly was an excellent mother, who put her children above all else. She often complained that Anne would oppose everything she did, but she was comforted to know that Anne trusted in me. Meep says Edith seemed to have been struggling with depression during her time in the secret annex. Meep said, Although the others were counting the days until the Allies came, making games of what they would do when it was all over, Mrs. Frank confessed that she was deeply ashamed of the fact that she felt the end would never come. The hiding place was cramped, and the occupants had to keep very, very quiet and still much of the time so they wouldn't be discovered. Though the tensions were running high, Anne also described that each person in the annex had eventually found their own little nook to find peace and quiet. Then, on November 16th, Frederick, or Fritz, Pfeffer, became the last occupant to arrive. Anne seemed to like Fritz at first, but after sharing a room with him, Anne began to found him insufferable and resented his intrusion. Fritz would notice the frictions between the families in the secret annex and would, according to Anne, try to mediate the arguments, but soon gave up. He would also comment all the time on Anne's behavior and would pass everything on to her mother, getting her in trouble. It seems like they both got on each other's nerves. Fritz was a dentist with interest in medicine, and his skill set helped the occupants of the annex while in hiding. He studied medicine often in the annex and would act as a physician for anyone in need. Anne did not like this at all. He once examined her when she had the flu, and she wrote, The worst moment of all was certainly when Mr. Pfeffer thought he played doctor and came and lay on my naked chest with his greasy head in order to listen to the sounds within. What is this fellow doing laying on my heart? He's not my sweetheart, is he? While her feelings toward many of her cohabitants soured, her feelings for Peter moved in another direction. Anne really needed someone to talk to about her feelings other than just writing them down in her diary, so they began to spend more and more time together. They talked about their situation, their parents, Peter's dreams of the future. The two began to enjoy each other's company, but it would eventually evolve into something else. Eventually, they kind of fell in love. On March 19, 1944, Anne wrote, We told each other so much, so very much, that I can't repeat it all, but it was lovely, the most wonderful evening I have ever had in the secret annex. Peter confided in Anne that she always made him feel better with her cheerfulness, which Anne thought was the loveliest thing he had ever said. The entry ends, 
I have the feeling now that Peter and I share a secret. If he looks at me with those eyes, that laugh, that wink, then it's just as if a little light goes on inside me. I hope it will remain like this and that we have many, many more glorious times together. Your grateful, happy, Anne. It was a bit complicated, though, as Anne suspected that Margot had feelings for Peter as well. Anne wonders if she causes her pain whenever she's with Peter. They wrote each other a bunch of letters back and forth, which Anne copies into her diaries as well. And Margot explained in a letter that she wasn't jealous of her and Peter per se, but jealous of the fact that they had each other in this difficult time. I thought that one of her letters back to Margot was really sweet, so I wrote it down. Here it is. You don't know how much I admire you, and I only hope that I may yet acquire the goodness that you and Daddy have, because now I don't see much difference between you and Daddy in that sense. On April 1st, 1944, she opens the diary entry with, And yet, everything is so difficult. I expect you can guess what I mean, can't you? I'm so longing for a kiss, the kiss that is so long coming. I wonder if all this time he still regards me as a friend. Am I nothing more? But then Sunday morning, just before 11 o'clock on April 16th, 1944, she writes, Darling is Kitty, remember yesterday's date, for it is a very important day in my life. Surely it is a great day for every girl when she receives her first kiss. She goes on a little further down the page. How did I suddenly come by this kiss? Well, I will tell you. Yesterday evening at 8 o'clock, I was sitting with Peter on his divan. It wasn't long before his arm went round me. Let's move up a bit, I said. Then I don't bump my head against the cupboard. He moved up, almost into the corner. I laid my arm under his and across his back, and he just about buried me because his arm was hanging on my shoulder. He held me firm against him, my left shoulder against his chest. Already my heart began to beat faster, but we had not finished yet. He didn't rest until my head was on his shoulder and his against it. When I sat upright after about five minutes, he soon took my head in his hands and laid it against him once more. Oh, it was so lovely. I couldn't talk much. The joy was too great. He stroked my cheek and arm a bit awkwardly, played with my curls, and our heads lay touching most of the time. I can't tell you, Kitty. The feeling that ran through me all the while. I was too happy for words, and I believe he was as well. After a little while of this bliss, Anne eventually wonders if the two would have gotten together had they not been put into this situation. She began to back off a little bit. She wrote April 28, 1944. Peter hasn't enough character yet, not enough willpower, too little courage and strength. He is still a child in his heart of hearts. He is no older than I am. He is only searching for tranquility and happiness. Am I only 14? Am I really still a silly little schoolgirl? Am I really so inexperienced about everything? I have more experience than most. I have been through things that hardly any my age has undergone. I am afraid of myself. I am afraid that in my longing I am giving myself too quickly. Though she was having doubts, she was still spending a lot of time upstairs with Peter, which made her father a little uneasy. He asked her not to visit so much, but as she continued to visit whenever she pleased, Dad eventually had to lay down the law. Anne's second-to-last diary entry was written on Friday, July 21st, 1944. The entry begins... Now I am getting really hopeful. Now things are going well, at least. Yes, really, they're going well. Super news. An attempt has been made on Hitler's life, and not even by a Jewish, and not even by Jewish communists or English capitalists this time, but by a proud German general. 
And what's more, he's a count and still quite young. The Fuhrer's life was saved by divine providence, and unfortunately, he managed to get off with just a few scratches and burns. The man she's discussing here is Klaus von Stauffenberg. I googled him who attempted to assassinate Hitler on July 29, 1944, at the Wolf's Lair, which is Hitler's Eastern Front military headquarters. Though Klaus had supported the German colonization of Poland and had made some extremist remarks regarding Polish Jews, he refrained from joining the Nazi party. He began voicing tentative support for Hitler in 1932, but his views of the Fuhrer would remain conflicted. After the Polish campaign, Klaus took up his uncle's offer to join the resistance movement against Hitler's regime, and he worked with fellow members to facilitate a coup against Hitler. On July 20th, Stauffenberg entered the briefing room carrying a briefcase containing two small bombs. One of the bombs went off, and Klaus was convinced that no one in the room could have survived, but four were killed and the rest were injured. Klaus and his co-conspirators were executed by firing squad on July 21st, 1944. Anne ends this entry by saying, Oh, dearie me, I hadn't just told you that I didn't want to be too hopeful. Forgive me, they haven't given me the name Little Bundle of Contradictions all for nothing. And then she began her last entry from Tuesday, August 1st, 1944. Little bundle of contradictions. That's how I ended my last letter, and that's how I'm going to begin this one. In this entry, she writes about how she feels she has a dual personality. One half embodies the exuberant cheerfulness, one who is the jokester and lighthearted. She says that side usually pushes the other, which is much better, deeper, and purer, she says. You must realize that no one knows Anne's better side, and that's why most people find me insufferable. Same girl. She ends the entry discussing how she wants the nice Anne to be more present, how she dislikes it when she becomes snappy, with the very last part of the last sentence reading, I twist my heart round again, so that the bad is on the outside and the good is on the inside, and keep on trying to find a way of becoming what I would so like to be, and what I could be if there weren't any other people living in this world. On the following page is the afterword. This is what it says. Anne Frank's diary ends here. It is a work utterly complete in itself, and its eloquence requires no further comment. On August 4th, 1944, the Gestapo broke into the Frank's hiding place. Peter was learning English with Otto when the Dutch police officers began the raid. The eight occupants, along with two of their helpers, were taken to Gestapo headquarters in Amsterdam. After being imprisoned there for a few weeks, the Franks and the Van Pels and Fritz were all sent to Westerbork, a transit camp in the Netherlands. An estimated 97,776 Jews were deported from Westerbork from July 1942 till September 1944. The Allies captured Brussels on September 3rd, and the Franks and the rest of the secret annex inhabitants were put on the last shipment of 1,000 Jews leaving Holland. The inmates were put aboard a freight train, and there was 75 people to each car, which each had one small barred window high up on one side. For three days and three nights, the train went east across Germany, with its final stop at Auschwitz in Poland. As the Jewish people departed the train car, uniformed SS officers holding police dogs greeted them as searchlights burned their eyes. On the platform, the men and women were separated. This was the last time Otto was to see the rest of his family. 
That scene is the most heartbreaking scene to me in the miniseries when you see Anne and Otto Frank being pulled away from each other. My nine-year-old self cried every single time, and I'm sure my 31-year-old self would cry every time as well. The prisoners were then registered and given a prison number. From that point on, they would be referred to by that number rather than their name. That number is then tattooed on each person's arm. They were then told to undress and forced to have their heads shaved and shoved into showers in front of hundreds of other people and SS guards. Their regular clothing was taken away and replaced with a striped uniform, given randomly and not by size. Their things were also taken and separated by the SS guards and kept for themselves. If they were healthy enough, they were given a work assignment or sent to the gas chambers for execution if they were unwell. This entire process was to humiliate the prisoners and remove any remnants of human dignity or personal identity. The healthier prisoners worked 12 hours a day, digging sod while being driven relentlessly by sadistic capos, criminals who served as SS labor overseers. At night, they were trapped in crowded barracks. The book Anne Frank, A Portrait of Courage, published in 1958, shares some of the events that occurred in the last few months of Anne's life. Much of the prisoners walked around like the living dead, but one survivor remembers that Anne was different. She said, I can still see her standing at the door and looking down at the camp street as a herd of naked gypsy girls were driven by to the crematory. And Anne watched them go and cried. She cried also when we marched past the Hungarian children who had already been waiting half a day in the rain in front of the gas chambers because it was not yet their turn. And Anne nudged me and said, Look, look their eyes. In October 1944, Anne, Margot, and Mrs. Von Pels were among the group of the youngest and strongest sent to move to Bergen-Belsen in Germany. Mrs. Frank was now left alone in Auschwitz and began refusing to eat. With that, her mind began to wander and she passed away in the infirmary barracks at Auschwitz on January 6, 1945. When Anne reached Bergen-Belsen, she was reunited with her childhood best friend, Hanelli, who thought that the Frank family had successfully fled to Switzerland and had no idea her friend had gone into hiding. Hanelli had met Mrs. Van Pels, who said she knew Anne, and told her that Anne was at the camp. They could only speak through barbed wire, though, as it seems like they were in two separate parts of the camp. Hanelli went to the barbed wire at night and began to call softly for her friend, Anne eventually came to the barbed wire, but she couldn't see her well since it was stuffed with straw and the lamps weren't very good. Hanelli said, It wasn't the same Anne that I had known. She was a broken girl. I probably was too. Yet it was terrible. She began to cry right away and told me, I don't have any parents anymore. My mother is dead. Anne assumed her dad had been gassed, making her an orphan. Hanelli believes that if Anne knew her father was alive and out there, that she would have had the strength to survive. Anne told Hanelli that there was nothing to eat on her side of the camp, and they were all so cold. So Hanelli went around to prisoners on her side and collected any bits of food and clothing others were able to spare, and threw the little package over the barricade. Unfortunately, another woman caught the package, and Anne was left with nothing, and devastated. They talked again once more a few days later, and she threw another package over. This time, Anne thankfully caught it. When speaking to kids in schools about her experiences during the Holocaust and of her friend Anne, Hanelli says, The situation got turned around. The fact that I survived and she didn't is just a cruel accident. And when I read that, my heart 
broke. She thought so highly of her friend, but I don't want her to put herself down like that. Like, you deserved to survive too. Everyone deserved to survive because no one should have been put into these circumstances to begin with. Hanelli passed away in 2022 at her home in Jerusalem, Israel, at the age of 93. I just wish Anne could have been able to live as long of a life as her friend. I want to imagine that they would have gone back to Jerusalem together and maybe gotten houses near each other, and Anne would have gotten married to someone, and so would Hanelli, and they would raise their kids with each other. I just want to imagine that that's what Anne's life would have looked like. Peter Von Pels and Otto were at the men's camp, and they saw Mr. Von Pels being taken to the gas chamber. I can't imagine how devastating that must have been for Peter to witness. Fritz was sent back to Germany and died in a camp that I, I cannot pronounce. It's Nuengam, Nuengam, I can say that, Nuengam camp. According to camp records, he died on December 25th, 1944, due to enterocolitis. After his liberation, Otto Frank says that Peter was a great support to him in Auschwitz because he had had more freedom of movement as a result of his work in the postroom and could obtain extra food. When the Soviet army was approaching, Auschwitz was cleared of all occupants and Peter was sent on what was called a death march. Essentially, all of the prisoners were just sent out to walk through horrendous conditions to another area, and they were not given any assistance. They were shoved and pushed along a lot of times. There's a really great description of one of these death marches in Eli Weisel's memoir, Night, which is also another brilliant Holocaust survivor memoir story. If you've never read it, highly recommended. But they were, it was just another way to kind of like test their very weak, malnourished, sick, beaten people and make them go through yet another hurdle to flee to their safety. And many of them died during these death marches. But according to Otto, Peter was still in relatively good condition and was himself convinced that Peter would make it. And Peter then and Peter did make it to another camp called Mauthausen on January 25th, 1945, then four days later taken onward to the Melk subcamp where he was assigned to work hard labor on the construction of an underground factory. The living and working conditions there were inhumane and the death toll rose constantly. Peter was sent back to Mauthausen to go to the infirmary on April 11th, 1944. And the infirmary is a place where sick prisoners lay without care administered and usually without any clothing or food. So basically, they just go there to die. Peter passed away on May 10th, 1945, just five days after the liberation of the camp by American soldiers. It's so unfortunate that he wasn't found. I want to know what happened there. He was only 18 years old. Otto Frank survived to be liberated by the Russian army. Otto worked hard labor at Auschwitz, building roads and other construction projects, then eventually was tasked with peeling potatoes, which, in my opinion, sounds a lot better. At one point, Otto was badly beaten, and he too was sent to the sick barracks. As the Soviet troops moved closer, Auschwitz was cleared, and anyone able to walk was to come along. Otto stayed in the barracks too weak to move, weighing very little and having no strength. He expected those left behind were to be shot, but they weren't. The Soviet troops entered the camp on January 27, 1945, saving Otto Frank. He wrote to his mother on March 18th, I was lucky I had good friends. When Otto's strength returned, he wanted nothing more than to return to the Netherlands and find out what happened to his family. 
Fighting was still going on throughout much of Europe, so he had to take a very long detour to get there. During his journey, he met a woman named Rosa de Winter, who had been imprisoned with Edith in Auschwitz. She told him that his wife had passed away, and from that point on, all of Otto's hopes were pinned on Anne and Margot. He arrived in Amsterdam on June 3, 1945, just ten months after being removed from his hiding place with his family and the others. Otto was relieved to find that his helpers had survived the war and moved in with Jan and Meep Guys. In July 1945, Otto met with a pair of sisters who had been at Bergen-Belsen with Anne and Margot, who told him about their miserable last months and about their deaths. It is believed that Anne passed away either February or March of 1945. It is impossible to know the specific cause of death, but there is evidence to suggest that she died of typhus, since there was an epidemic throughout the camp, killing 1,700 people. Gina Turgel, who was also a Bergen-Belsen survivor and a hospital worker there, told The Sun in 2015 of Anne's death. Her bed was around the corner from me. She was delirious, terrible, burning up. Gina said that she had brought Anne water to wash with. Witnesses said that Margot fell from her bunk and in her weakened state was killed by the shock of it. Anne only lasted one day without her sister before passing on herself. I feel like once you've lost your entire family and she's the youngest, she probably felt like she didn't have anyone else in the world anymore and just let go. Their deaths most likely occurred only a few weeks or to about a month before the British troops liberated the camp on April 15, 1945. When Otto shared the news with Meep, she handed all of Anne's diaries and writings over to the grieving father. He couldn't summon the courage to read them at first, but once he began, he couldn't stop. He marveled at his daughter's writing. But he also found that he knew less of his daughter than he had previously believed. He says, The Anne that appeared before me was very different from the daughter I had lost. I had had no idea of the depth of her thoughts and feelings. He sent copies of her writing to friends and family and asked them to read it. Some of them began to push Otto to get it published, but that was easier said than done. Now, there are probably hundreds, thankfully, of Holocaust survivor stories and memoirs out there, and I've probably read about half of them. But at that time, no one wanted to look back on the ugliness they had just experienced, and Anne's diary would bring all of the pain to the forefront. Otto eventually found a publisher, and two years after the war, the book was out in the world. The diary of a young girl was immensely popular. But there are also people who question whether or not the diary had been edited or changed in any way before publication, especially due to there being multiple versions of the diary. We'll get into that. According to AnneFrank.org, Otto began having parts of the diary typed up in late 1945, and in doing so, he left out some sections and made some corrections. He did leave out some of the stuff that Anne had to say about her mother and about their marriage, because I just don't think that he wanted the public to know about that. Otto's friend Albert Colvern made the second typescript, changing the names of nine of the 13 names that Anne herself, possibly with a view of future publication, had invented for the others in hiding herself. So Anne was the one that actually made all of these pseudonyms. Herman Van Pels turned into Mr. Van Dan, August became Mrs. Petronella Van Dan, Peter was Peter Van Dan, and Fritz Pfeffer became Albert Dussel. Apparently, Dussel means like dimwit or stupid or something, which I think is kind of funny. But I guess uh, the Pfeffer family was not so thrilled with the way that Anne depicted their father. Otto then renamed Meep Guys as Meep Van Stanton, Jan as Hank, Johannes Kleinman as Mr. Kufius, 
Victor Kugler as Mr. Crawler, Bep Boscugel, probably saying that name wrong again, is Eli Vossen, and Johan Boscugel is Mr. Vossen. Again, I'm so sorry, not good with these names at all. And Anne had even chosen a pseudonym for herself, which she first chose to be Anne Eulis, A-U-L-I-S. Then she decided on Anne Robin. She then decided to change her family members' names to Betty Robin for her sister Margot, Frederick for Otto, and Nora for Edith. It also seems that the diary switched from being for her eyes only to thinking of it as something to be published on March 28, 1944, when she writes... History cannot be written on a basis of official decisions and documents alone. If our descendants are to understand fully what we as a nation have had to endure and overcome during these years, then what we really need are ordinary documents. A diary, letters from a worker in Germany, a collection of sermons given by a priest or parson. Not until we succeed in bringing together vast quantities of this simple, everyday material will the picture of our struggle for freedom be painted at its full depth and glory. She began rewriting her diary on loose sheets of paper, but would never finish the project. The last entry she rewrote was from March 29, 1944. There are also occasions where there was dialogue between the older and younger Anne. For example, on January 22, 1944, she wrote on her entry for November 2, 1942, I wouldn't be able to write that kind of thing anymore. The whole time I've been here, I've longed unconsciously and at times consciously for trust, love, and physical affection. This longing may change in intensity, but it's always there. Anne had also made a list of her physical attributes and her appearance as well. So, number one, blue eyes, black hair, no. Dimples in cheeks, yes. Dimple in chin, yes. Widow's peak, no. Straight teeth, no. Small mouth? No. Curly eyelashes? No. Straight nose? Yes, at least so far. Nice clothes? Sometimes. Not nearly enough in my opinion. Nice fingernails? Sometimes. Intelligent? Sometimes. I beg to differ, Anne. You are incredibly intelligent. Both of the original typed scripts were preserved and a third person began to work on it, correcting typing errors and bringing the manuscript up to par with publishers' styling guides. All of this resulted in the book's first publication in June of 1947. Anne would have been 18 years old. She had received her first diary just a little over five years prior. Upon publication, Otto wrote how proud Anne would have been if she had lived to see this. After all, on March 29, 1944, she wrote, Imagine how interesting it would be if I published a novel about the secret annex. The Dutch edition received positive reviews, and parents and teachers were advised to read the diary as well. The first edition sold 3,036 copies, the second, 6,830, and then the third edition in February of 1948 sold 10,500 copies. The success encouraged Otto to publish in other countries. A French edition was released in 1950, followed by the German release in late 1950. Awkward! Two English versions were published in 1952, one for Great Britain and one for the U.S. Today, the diary is available in over 70 languages. Throughout the rest of his life, Otto would receive letters telling him how moved they were by the book. Otto wrote of his communications, Despite all difference, there is usually a desire to learn from the past and to work toward a better understanding among people. 
Otto died on August 19, 1980, and stated in his will that all of his daughter's manuscripts should be given to the Dutch nation, now the Dutch Institute for War Documentation. The NIOD published three versions of the diary described above in 1986. They include the preserved diary entries, the version rewritten by Anne herself, and the edition compiled by Otto, then published. They published this all under one cover entitled The Diaries of Anne Frank. In 1998, five previously unknown pages of the diary appeared. They were five loose sheets that Otto had set apart before the publication of the diary in 1947. He probably didn't want to make these pages public because of Anne's rather hurtful comments about her mother and their marriage. With these findings, there needed to be another new publication, and this one was called The Diary of Anne Frank, the revised critical edition in 2003. So here's the breakdown of that whole mess that seemed a little bit confusing. Anne wrote the first version in a designated diary in two notebooks, which is version A, then rewrote much of her writing in version B, which came out in 1944. Version B was written on loose paper and is not identical to version A. In 1986, the Dutch Institute for War Documentation published the critical edition of the diary containing comparisons from all known versions, both edited and unedited, Discussion asserting the diary's authentication, which was always questioned for some reason, mostly from Holocaust deniers and such, and additional historical information relating to the family and the diary itself. This version also included sections regarding sex, sexuality, menstruation, and other more risque topics. It was in 2018 when researchers used new technology to discover even more risque passages— featuring four risque jokes and candid explanations of sex, contraception, and sex work, which had been hiding under brown masking paper, which Anne had apparently applied herself, they believe, to hide these dirty jokes and such. The Netherlands Institute for War director Frank von Vrie said anyone who reads the Anyone who reads the passages that have now been discovered will be unable to suppress a smile. The dirty jokes are classic among children. They make it clear that Anne, with all her gifts, was above all also an ordinary girl. When Anne was 13 years old, less than three months into hiding on September 28, 1942, she wrote, in a passage regarding sex, how a young woman gets her period around the age of 14 and said it's a sign that she is ripe to have relations with a man, but one doesn't do that, of course, before one is married. This one is so much. I love it. This one reads, You can barely find it because the folds of the skin hide the opening. The hole's so small, I can hardly imagine how a man could get in there, much less how a baby could come out. It's hard enough trying to get your index finger inside. Oh my god, I wish I had read this version as a kid. This is amazing. On sex, she writes, All men, if they are normal, go with women. Women like that accost them on the street, and then they go together. In Paris, they have a big house for that. Papa has been there. One, and don't be homophobic. Two, your dad went to one of those places and then told you about it? Weird. In another section, she wrote, Unconsciously, I had these feelings even before I came here. Once when I was spending the night at Jackie's, I could no longer restrain my curiosity about her body, which she'd always hidden from me and which I'd never seen. I asked whether, as proof of our friendship, we could touch each other's breasts. Jackie refused. Hey, a girl's gotta shoot her shot. She goes on, I also had a terrible desire to kiss her, which I did. 
Every time I see a female nude, such as the Venus in my art history book, I go into ecstasy. Sometimes I find them so exquisite I have to struggle to hold back my tears. If only I had a girlfriend. This has had many people wondering if Anne was a little bit queer, which she very well could have been because honestly, this sounds like me with my girlfriends when I was growing up. I was like, why do I like seeing them naked so much? This is very strange. Am I a pervert? This is weird. But I remember being a kid like this as well. I think it's really normal for even straight kids to kind of like go through that level of experimentation because they're curious about their bodies and other people's bodies in the world and don't have a very clear understanding of that yet. But hey, she could have also actually wanted a girlfriend. We will never know because Anne is not around to tell us what her sexuality is. On menstruation, whenever I get my period, and it's only been three times, I have the feeling that in spite of the pain, discomfort, and mess, I'm carrying around a sweet secret. I remember so vividly knowing that Anne wanted her period really bad because if she got her period, that would mean that she was a woman and I was the same way. I had a lot of older friends. I couldn't wait to grow up. I wanted to grow up so fast. And I would even, I think I lied. I did lie. Why am I saying I think? I totally lied and told friends that I had my period when I didn't because I wanted to be seen as more mature. And there's this scene in the miniseries where, you know, that Anne is looking forward to this symbol of becoming a woman But the first time she gets her period, she's in the annex and she's just like crying in this little stall. And oh, it's such a heartbreaking scene. Anne also showed hints of a feminist spirit throughout all of the editions of the book. But in one of the lost passages, she wrote, I've made up my mind to lead a different life from other girls and not to become an ordinary housewife later on. I need to have something more besides a husband and children to devote myself to. I don't want to have lived in vain like most people. I don't mean to imply that women should stop having children. On the contrary, nature intended them to, and that's the way it should be. What I condemn are our system of values and the men who don't acknowledge how great, difficult, but ultimately beautiful women's share in society is. One last short passage showing this kind of spirit read, I know that I'm a woman with inner strength and a great deal of courage. Ain't that the truth? Before Otto's death, back in 1953, he married a former Amsterdam neighbor named Alfred Geringer, and the couple moved to Switzerland. I really like this story because they had known each other before the war, they knew each other's families, and it seems like they were really there to love and support each other because they spent the rest of their lives together educating people of the importance of Anne's diary and the horrors the Jews experienced during the Holocaust. One of Elfride's children is a woman named Eva Schloss, who is a very prominent Holocaust survivor as well. I believe I've mentioned her on the show before, but definitely look her up. She is pretty amazing. And she, you know, I guess would be the stepsister of Anne Frank posthumously. And she was Anne's age as well. So I wonder if that was something that maybe helped Otto heal or if maybe that was something that was difficult for him. I'm not sure. After the war, Otto, Frank, and his helpers identified two of the Dutch policemen who raided their secret annex. At the time, they were both being held in a detention center already. In 2022, a team, including an ex-FBI agent, announced that a man named Arnold Vandenberg, a Jewish figure in Amsterdam, probably gave up the Frank family's hiding place to save his own family. Arnold was a member of Amsterdam's Jewish Council, which enforced the Nazis' policies in Jewish areas. It was disbanded in 1943, and many of its members were then sent to concentration camps. 
The investigative team found that somehow Arnold had avoided being sent to a camp and was instead living in Amsterdam as normal at the time. There's been some suggestion that he was feeding information from the Jewish community to the Nazis for his own protection. The team also found evidence that Otto Frank had known who gave the family up, as they found an anonymous letter addressed to Otto identifying Arnold as the betrayer. The reason it may never have come to light is due to anti-Semitism. Many members of the Jewish council were met with threats of violence against family members, like I mentioned, if they did not comply with these orders. And Otto may not have wanted it to be public knowledge that this was done by another Jewish person. According to a study, Arnold would have had a list of Jews hiding in Amsterdam and could have turned over this list to the Nazis in order to save his family. But this seems confusing to me. How did they know who was in hiding if some of them had fled? You know what I mean? Like, this just doesn't seem realistic to me. According to a Dutch newspaper, Arnold passed away in 1950 of throat cancer. But there is still some debate as a professor at the University of Amsterdam, Johan Hawink ten Kate, noted that Arnold himself was in hiding around the time of the raid in August of 1944. Apparently, the investigation's conclusion was then challenged on the basis that the Jewish Council would not have had a list of hiding Jews. I didn't think so. His family members threatened a lawsuit and the publishing house of the study made an apology. So I guess we still really don't know who ratted them out. Anne's openness in this book, even before some of the newly discovered passages, lead to the book being banned in schools and libraries. But Anne's openness about such topics is what makes young readers drawn to the book and love it. Those were my favorite parts. She understood my mind. There were a lot of things about Anne that drew me to her as a child. She was a quote-unquote chatterbox, loud, silly, and very friendly, qualities I shared with her. I also loved to read and write and was very dramatic, much like Anne. We also both love an attentive audience. I was love crazy from a young age after consuming all the old MGM musicals and Disney classics, and I, like Anne, had a crush on a boy named Peter. I also mirrored Anne in the fact that we both really wanted to grow up fast. With all of these qualities, it was easy for me to fall in love with Anne and think of her as a friend. She also gave me an example of what it meant to be a strong, opinionated, quirky girl and how that was okay. Even though she often chastised herself for her behavior, I always looked up to her and she made me feel better about myself. Anne spoke of wanting to be a journalist and travel, but who knows what she would have been, especially after escaping the trauma of concentration camps. If Anne were alive today, she would be 94 years old. A report issued in 2022 showed that there are roughly 50,000 Holocaust survivors that remain in the United States. The youngest survivors in this country are now in their late 70s, and nearly 60% are 85 and older. In Israel, according to a 2023 report, there is a total of 147,199 survivors in the country, including 462 who celebrated 100th birthdays last year. Among the survivors in Israel are 521 new immigrants who fled the war in Ukraine. I can't imagine having to flee two terrible dictatorships in one lifetime. Their data shows that the youngest person is 76 years old and was in their mother's womb when the war ended. Just think of who or what Anne would have become. I think she would have published her diary on her own. I wonder if she would have used a pseudonym to keep her privacy, making herself unknown, or if she would use her real name, wanting the fame and glory. 
If I know Anne, like I think I do, she would have wanted the love and adoration as an author. I think she would have written children's books, romance novels, and maybe even a follow-up memoir later in life, filling her readers in on how she healed and survived since the war. Anne's story, and all of the other stories like it, will never not be important. History repeats itself. We've seen it repeat itself over and over and over again. Genocides are still occurring all over the world. Anti-Semitism is on a rise in the United States as well as in Germany. We cannot become desensitized, especially because the world seems to be so rampant with white supremacy and Nazis again. And it's so frustrating, especially as an American, because the Americans like to applaud themselves as being the good guys in World War II and liberating the Jews from Hitler and so on and so forth. Yet they went home and treated the black community, the brown community, the same way that Jews and Romani people and gay people and other minorities were treated in Germany and in Europe. They did the same thing. And now white supremacy is so fucking prevalent in this country that somehow the word patriot has been turned into meaning Nazi. And I'm thinking about that especially because it's 4th of July weekend. It just makes no sense to me that these people who think they're patriots are behaving like literal Nazis. I hope you all enjoyed listening to this episode. It's one that I've really been wanting to do for a long time. I don't think I've ever done an episode by myself this long. I'm very, very impressed. I really worked my butt off on this episode. I hope you really enjoyed it. If you do enjoy the show and you think others would too, please go to Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review with a quick sentence about why you enjoyed the show. You can also rate the show on Spotify. Don't forget to join Patreon if you want to support the show a little bit more and get some extra content. Go to patreon.com slash angry neighborhood feminist or go to the link in the show notes. And lastly, don't forget to send me any of your beautiful questions for next week's AMA episode. All right, that's all I have for you today. Thank you so much for listening. With all that being said, I encourage you to raise on. Bye. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics, and sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot-button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.